On May 2, 2015, a Canadian SWAT team was swarming around an $8 million mansion at 963 King George's Way in the exclusive upscale neighborhood in West Vancouver. They were watching 57-year-old Lee Chow after getting reports that Lee had fought with and killed his cousin by marriage, 41-year-old Gong Yuan. Just before midnight, they got a frantic phone call from Lee's wife, Xiao Mei Li, and she told them a crazy story. She said that she and her mother-in-law, who both lived in the house, had gone out, and when they came back, her cousin's body was lying in the driveway in a pool of blood. At this point, the mansion turned into a crime scene. Police watched Lee at a distance from a huge window. According to the New York Times, at one point, they could actually see him washing blood off of a large hunting knife. The surreal scene went on for hours. Police could see him walking through the house with a rifle. They could hear him fire up his power saw, the one that he used to cut up the body. The first line of a New York Times article about the case read, quote, After he had chopped up the body into 108 pieces and taken a long nap, Chow Lee cooked himself some noodles for breakfast, end quote. This was the beginning of the investigation into one of the craziest murder trials ever to take place in Canada, and it made headlines around the world. But the horrific crime was just the beginning. This murder mystery would involve bribing government officials, multiple paternity suits, immigration fraud, and a YouTube reality star at the center of it all. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. In May 2015, police in West Vancouver, Canada, found themselves in a standoff with a killer. Now, this crime shocked the community of British properties where the $8 million mansion was. This is one of the most exclusive areas in Vancouver. Again, according to media reports, when Xiao and her mother-in-law came home from their outing, she screamed at her husband to call an ambulance. She told investigators that Lee told them to leave immediately. So several hours later, she called 911 with the help of an English-speaking friend. According to North Shore News, police surrounded the house, but Lee refused to come out. So the police actually stayed there overnight, watching, waiting, and trying to negotiate with Lee as he continued to dismember his cousin's body. Finally, the next morning at around 8 a.m., a police officer who spoke Mandarin called the house. Lee picked up, and after talking with him, the police officer convinced him to give himself up. The standoff was over, and officers took Lee into custody. Police were finally able to enter the home, and they found a horrific scene. After Lee dragged the body inside, he had cut Gong's body up into 108 pieces and packed them into plastic bags. Now, at this point, obviously, police were pretty sure that they knew who killed Gong. But as they tried to piece together what happened, the question was why. Lee's wife told police that she and her husband worked with Gong in his business. She described the business as state agriculture. But investigators would soon find out that the truth was a lot more complicated. Meanwhile, the forensics team was scouring the crime scene at the house. Lee had told investigators that the fight started inside the house, in the foyer. He said that Gong attacked him. Then, Lee claimed he hit him in the head with a hammer, 
and the fight spilled over into the driveway. Lee said he was terrified and fighting for his life, and that's when he claimed that he shot Gong twice at point-blank range. Forensic investigators figured out that the blows from the hammer fractured Gong's skull, and they found blood spatter patterns inside the foyer of the house. But an autopsy report reportedly listed Gong's cause of death as a gunshot wound to the neck. Now, 41-year-old Gong was a controversial figure in Canada, and a lot about his background remains a mystery. We do know from multiple media reports that he was born in northeastern China. He came from a wealthy family and used the family money to invest in coal production, according to the New York Times. In September 2005, he married a Canadian-Chinese woman, and she sponsored his Canadian visa. From there, he moved to Vancouver and started spending a lot of money investing in property. Two months after he got his visa in 2007, the couple reportedly divorced. Immigration officials would later describe the marriage in court as immigration fraud. They alleged that his goal wasn't happily ever after. It was getting permanent residency. And it worked. According to the New York Times, Gong spent around 35 million Canadian dollars on property and land in British Columbia and Saskatchewan. He had a lot of cash to splash out on his multiple homes. The home on King George's Way and another 10-bedroom Tudor home in Shaughnessy, a neighborhood known for being a favorite of old money families. Now, this case also shined a spotlight on the lives of a lot of second-generation Chinese immigrants to Canada. Gong was not a minimalist. He filled his mansions with interior design that could be described as Scarface style. One of the homes actually had a stuffed Black Panther posing on a rock sitting inside the front door. He had a Bentley and a Rolls-Royce parked in the driveway, and he even bought his own private island called Pym Island, which is near Vancouver Island. According to news reports, Gong also did something else that people sometimes do when they're trying to avoid taxes or closer scrutiny for other reasons. He started putting other people's names on his properties. Whatever the reasons for doing this, it's risky business because once you put someone else's name on something, legally, it's theirs. And it seemed that Gong was about to find this out the hard way. In 2010, he invited his cousin, Xiao Mei, her husband, Lee, and their teenage daughter, Florence, to come live with him. Now, Lee has been described in the media as the poorer cousin. Lee stood just over five feet tall. He's been described by neighbors, friends, and family as quiet, soft-spoken, and supposedly totally normal. He would later testify that he was born and raised in China under Mao Zedong. President Mao constructed communes after executing millions of property owners, and life under Mao was hard. The people who survived lived on starvation-level wages while government members prospered. When he was just nine years old, Lee's father was sent to a labor camp after being labeled a counter-revolutionary. In 1978, after Mao's death, the new president, Deng Xiaoping, got rid of the old guard, and the Chinese economy roared ahead and created a new wealthy class who embraced capitalism. Lee said he was bullied at school, but as an adult, he overcame his tough background and found success by founding a printing company. He got married, and in 2007, the family moved to Montreal. So in 2010, when Gong invited them to move to Vancouver to his place, the family jumped at the opportunity and all moved into the same house, according to Post Magazine. Lee worked in Gong's business, and his wife helped with bookkeeping and cooking, according to media reports. Gong put the property on King George's Way in Lee's name, and they all seemed to embrace their new lifestyle, especially Lee's daughter, Florence. By age 26, 
She was one of the stars of the YouTube reality show, Ultra Rich Asians. The show became a huge hit in Asia, and she reinvented herself with a new name, Flo's. The first season followed Flo's and her friends around. This included a woman named Coco Paris, who the New York Times described as a Taiwanese shopaholic. Over the course of the show, the women traveled around the world, partied at multi-million dollar homes in the Hollywood Hills, argued over who had more designer shopping bags in Milan, and drank red wine out of straws. During one of their outings, they played a game which involved answering some questions. One of them was, would you rather date an ugly rich man or an attractive poor one? One of them says, quote, I'd rather cry in an Audi than laugh in a Honda, end quote. This seems to sum up their life philosophy, at least as depicted in the sound bites on the show. Another cast member goes on to explain that she would choose the rich guy because he could get plastic surgery. Then he would be both hot and rich. The show is kind of like the real housewives of Beverly Hills for the rich kids of Instagram generation. While filming the show, Flo's implied that the home on King George's Way was hers, according to Post Magazine. Welcome to my island, she said, while taking her friends on a tour of the properties that had been purchased by her uncle. The South China Morning Post ran an article about the show called Nose Jobs, Champagne and Lamborghinis, A Hot Mess of Ultra-Rich Asians in Vancouver. They interviewed the show's producer, Kevin Lee. Lee was raised in Eastside, which was described as a working-class neighborhood in Vancouver. Over the years, he told the paper that he started looking around at the new generation of uber-wealthy Chinese immigrants living in Vancouver. This included the younger generation and their over-the-top displays of wealth. There's a name for them in Mandarin. They are called the Fuerdai. According to Jai Young Fan, who wrote a very detailed article about the Fuerdai for The New Yorker, this translates in Mandarin to something like rich second generation. But in other publications, I've seen Fuerdai translated as trust fund babies, kind of a Chinese version of Paris Hilton circa the year 2000. Fan wrote, quote, The West is the plan for many of China's new rich. In the past decade, they have swept into cities like New York, London, and Los Angeles, snapping up real estate and provoking anxieties about inequality and globalized wealth. Rich Chinese have become a fixture in the public imagination, the way rich Russians were in the 1990s and rich people from the Gulf states were in the decades before that, end quote. Recently, I checked out a Fuerdai Instagram called Rich Kids of China. I saw several supercars and a picture of a chihuahua in an Hermes bag. I saw a comment there, too. It was something like, if you're carrying your pet in anything that costs less than $200,000, you may as well be using a plastic bag. Other things that are hashtag Fuerdai problems include things like having to share a Lamborghini with a sibling. A lot of the Chinese-American community are embarrassed by the Fuerdai. It must be like someone from an upscale community in New Jersey watching Jersey Shore. While he was in the process of casting the show, Lee said, quote, These will be four or five girls who are having fun, spending daddy's money, that are enjoying life and funding an economy, end quote. But internally, a lot of the trust fund kids actually appear to be pretty tortured. They were unsure that anyone loved them for anything other than their money, and tortured by the fact that they seemed to be unable to surpass their parents' accomplishments. Now, Flo's and her friends were an extreme example. 
But there was no doubt that as money from mainland China flooded into Vancouver, inevitably, it had an effect on real estate prices. They skyrocketed. The money foreign buyers spend on real estate taxes helps pump up the economy. But at the same time, a lot of people who saw themselves as locals kind of resented the foreign money. And some of the press clippings could be seen as having some racist undertones. Here's a sentence from the National Post. Quote, Vancouver real estate agent Serena Han knows the $25 million residential property she has listed on the city's expensive west side will eventually go to a Chinese buyer who will then tear down the existing ramshackle dwelling and build a mansion, end quote. The National Post interviewed an urban planner and demographer who called Vancouver a hedge city. What he meant was, he said, Vancouver doesn't have the glamour of a city like Paris, but it's seen as a low-risk and safe place for international clients to park their money. But behind the scenes, things were starting to fall apart. According to some media reports, Gong was starting to have trouble with some of his businesses back in China. Former employees of Gong's said that Lee was hard to deal with and bullied them. On top of that, Lee was reportedly not the businessman that his cousin was, and he started losing money. According to a civil lawsuit that was filed later by Gong's family, Gong, quote, lent the accused $2 million in the stock market, and the accused lost $1.8 million, end quote. So Gong was starting to get tired of bankrolling his extended family. And at the same time, they say they were becoming increasingly disgusted by his lifestyle. Gong was a player. According to a civil suit later filed over his estate, Gong had a, quote, endless stream of girlfriends, end quote, as many as 100. He would fly them in from different destinations around the world, from Beijing to Los Angeles, and none of them seemed to know about each other. Lee told investigators that he and his family were horrified by Gong's treatment of women. They said he verbally abused them and made them promises they said he had no intention of fulfilling. Also, they say he had several children out of wedlock. Another question mark was the relationship between Flo's and Gong, the man she called uncle. Friends said she thought he was creepy and tried to avoid him. Tensions came to a head on that sunny Saturday when Gong and Lee confronted each other. We'll never hear Gong's side of the story. But Lee claimed that the final straw was when Gong told him something shocking. He wanted to marry Flo's. In May 2015, Lee was describing to investigators what had happened between him and Gong. Police asked Lee what happened, and he made a videotape confession. He said the final straw was when Gong told him he wanted to marry his daughter, who was married to someone else at the time, though the couple had reportedly separated, by the way. At that point, Lee said he told his cousin, quote, you are worse than a beast, worse than a pig or a dog, end quote. He claimed that Gong flew into a rage and attacked him with a hammer. To defend himself, he said, he shot his cousin. Lee, an experienced hunter, said he then went into autopilot mode and started to chop up the body. He said, quote, I heard someone talking to me about a bear and how to cut up a bear, end quote. Lee was arrested and charged with second-degree murder for killing Gong and interfering with human remains for the dismemberment. Lee's lawyer argued that he was provoked by his cousin's demand to marry his daughter and thus was only guilty of manslaughter. Now, this was just the beginning of a complicated legal battle that would span several years. The difference between second-degree murder and manslaughter is hugely important, 
because in Canada, a murder conviction could have meant life in prison. But manslaughter has no minimum sentence. Meanwhile, investigators were taking a closer look into Gong's background. In addition to his visa marriage, they were asking questions about how he really made his money. There were also public allegations of bribery. In 2010, according to the province, Gong bribed a corrupt Chinese official with a 1,000-gram gold bar worth about $50,000. Then, Gong's mining company continued to bribe Chinese government officials with gold in exchange for coal mining rights, according to a verdict obtained by the province. After Lee and his family relocated to Vancouver, Gong gave Lee power of attorney, which meant that he had access to Gong's CIBC bank accounts and his safety deposit box. And according to a lawsuit filed by Gong's brother, Chiang, Lee and his wife wasted no time after Gong's death in trying to cash in. Shortly after Gong's death, Chiang got permission from a British Columbia Supreme Court to sue Lee in civil court. In the lawsuit against Lee and his wife, Chiang alleged that they, quote, used the power of attorney to take money out of Gong's CIBC accounts and use it for themselves, end quote. Then his lawyer, Chris Johnson, appeared at a press conference. Now, Johnson claimed that Lee was seen driving Gong's Bentley just days after the killing, according to CBC News. He said, quote, So the question arises, why would someone kill his benefactor? With the known facts, there is really only one conclusion. Mr. Chow did this for financial reasons. He thought that he could get a free house, not just any house, but a very valuable house in West Vancouver, end quote. He also said that Gong's brother was concerned that his alleged killer could use his house to fund the legal defense. Cheong got a court order that meant that he and another person could be made administrators of the estate. This gave him access to information about Gong's bank accounts and meant that he could get evidence for his lawsuit for alleged unjust enrichment. Now, Lee and Xiao hit back. They claimed that they were the rightful owners of the house and that none of the money had been misappropriated. A lawyer for Lee called the allegations against him and Xiao outrageous and scandalous speculation. In an email to CBC News, Lee's lawyer also took an issue with the press conference. He wrote, quote, My clients have grave concerns as to what motivated the press conference and are considering all their legal rights at this stage. In the meantime, they wish it to be noted they deny all the allegations apparently made during the press conference and that were reported, end quote. In 2017, Lee's trial finally began in a British Columbia Supreme Court. But like everything else in this case, it was long and complicated and dragged on. It was 2018 before Lee was able to take the stand in his own defense. He was visibly emotional as he testified through a Chinese translator. Both sides had agreed to a judge rather than a jury deciding the trial. According to the North Shore News, Lee cried when he told the judge how he and the victim, Gong, struggled over the gun before it went off. According to a videotape police statement, Lee said the two men were inside the house discussing a business plan to market specialized stands for hunting rifles. At some point, he said, he took out the gun to demonstrate how the stands would work. Then he said Gong made his indecent proposal and said he wanted to marry Flo's as part of the deal. According to Lee's lawyer, Lee was a normal, healthy person who had been subject to provocation. Lee said, quote, You not only beat up and further abuse your girlfriends, you verbally abuse your own mother. I can never allow my daughter's lifetime happiness to be ruined by you. Even a rabbit will not eat the grass around his nest, end quote. 
meaning he explained to the judge that even if you're a bad person, you don't hurt the people closest to you. Or as we say in the U.S., don't where you eat. Lee said that after he called Gong, disgusting and worse than a dog, a fight broke out in the foyer. And he had an elaborate story for why Gong ended up with all the wounds, even though Lee said he was the one who was threatened. Lee claimed that Gong lashed out at him with a hammer first. He said that he was somehow able to grab the hammer and hit Gong with it. He said he tried to get away, but Gong followed him outside. Then, he said, he started struggling with Gong. He said, quote, I missed my footing. My body shook. And then the first shot rang out, end quote. He added, quote, He looked fierce, ferocious. I've never seen such a terrifying look in someone's eyes. I was so fearful. Instinctively, I loaded the second bullet, end quote. Now, this seems to make no sense. First of all, he'd already shot Gong once and hit him in the head with a hammer, yet he's still claiming to be terrified. And if he was so terrified, by the way, it's odd that instead of leaving the scene immediately, he took the time to load a second bullet and fire again. But Lee had an explanation for that. He claimed that after firing the first shot, he dropped the gun. His cousin Gong reached out for it, and they started to struggle over the weapon. During the altercation, he said that a second shot rang out. I notice this a lot in cases like this. People seem to use phrases like, the gun just went off, or fired itself, or a shot rang out. Kind of like it's a literary device. They would rather say that the gun fired itself somehow than admit that they pulled the trigger. Lee said, quote, it was very confusing at times, end quote. But Lee continued to insist that Gong was the aggressor. And even though Lee had no wounds, he claimed to have been the victim who was under attack. Lee said that after the second shot, Gong stopped moving, so he went to look down at him. This, by the way, despite the fact he just claimed that he was running away because he was in fear of his life. He said, quote, I saw that Gong Wan's eyes were still open and did not even blink. He was also bleeding from the corner of his mouth. I knew then that he was already dead, end quote. Lee said he was still staring down at the body when his wife and mother-in-law came home from a walk. When they saw the carnage, he said, they freaked out. They screamed at him to call an ambulance. He said he told them there was no point. Gong was already dead, and he said he insisted that they leave. Lee said after that, he dragged Gong's body into the garage and turned on his power saw. Lee dragged the body of his cousin Gong into his garage workshop and went to work cleaning up the crime scene. He scrubbed the bloodstains off the driveway, and Lee told the judge that he planned to move the body to a site where he hunted. But he decided the body was too heavy for that, so he decided to dismember it so that he could carry it out. That's when Lee started methodically cutting, and he claimed that at this point, he started to hallucinate. He said, quote, I heard someone talking to me about a bear and how to cut up a bear, and that's how I cut up the body. I cut up the body into so many pieces like I was cutting up a bear. I did not have any of the thoughts that a normal person would have, end quote. In the end, Lee cut the body into 108 pieces. Now, Lee's lawyer mounted an interesting defense. Again, he didn't dispute that Lee shot Gong, but he insisted that Lee was timid and fearful and said this was totally out of character for him. Lee's lawyer said that Lee was non-confrontational 
and insisted he could never have done something this extreme without provocation. During the trial, allegations of money changing hands continued to surface. The Vancouver Sun went through past election donation records in British Columbia and found one showing that on May 12, 2015, so 10 days after Gong's remains were found, Lee paid $1,000 to the BC Liberal Party. But records on Chinese individuals can be difficult to verify due to the difficulties of the language. A lot of Chinese words can sound the same phonetically, but have different characters, giving them totally different meanings. Election records don't have Chinese characters, so according to the paper, they can't confirm that it's the same man. Also, none of this is conclusive, and even if it was, it's not a huge amount of money. But it does beg the question of whether there was more going on behind the scenes with this man, who claimed to have not been in his right mind when the killing occurred. In the end, British Columbia Supreme Court Justice Terence Schultz found Lee guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter, as well as interfering with human remains. But in January 2020, in a shocking ruling, Lee was found not guilty of his cousin's murder after the judge ruled that the intent to kill had not been proved. Justice Schultz said that basically, even though he didn't believe Lee's testimony, he did have reasonable doubt over whether he planned to kill Gong, which is the requirement to get a guilty verdict in Canada, according to the New York Times. Justice Schultz also ruled that Lee's behavior afterward had no effect on his ruling. He said that the dismemberment and everything that followed had no probative value in determining whether Lee was guilty of second-degree murder. So the judge seemed to buy that Lee was not in his right mind at the time he killed Gong, and that this had been the result of a desperate man in a moment of insanity. Lee's lawyer said the outcome was a good one for his client, whom he described as a man of previously unblemished character. He said, quote, He's a completely normal, sensible, and well-adjusted human being. Until this day, non-violent, non-anything. That kind of report came to us from all sorts of different people. Completely non-violent. One of the witnesses said this was the last thing in the world he would ever expect to hear concerning Mr. Chow. End quote. This is another case where, tragically, civil lawsuits and criminal trials should have been linked, in my opinion. At trial, the financial fraud that Lee had allegedly been committing against his cousin wasn't taken seriously enough. Some of Gong's family members and their lawyers were saying all along the motive was not the threat of a marriage to his daughter. It was money. They said that Lee was angry because his cousin was cutting him out of his family fortune. They said that over the years, the financial disputes between the cousins started becoming bigger and bigger. This included a battle over a huge plot of land in Saskatchewan, where Gong also controlled an agricultural company. Gong's family said he was cutting Lee out of that land deal. And they believed that contrary to what the judge ruled, Lee's actions after the killing absolutely shed light into his motives. Two days after the killing, Xiao Mei transferred $2 million from Gong's accounts into her bank account. She was charged with theft. The case was later dismissed. But the case was about to take one more crazy twist. Because Gong died with no will. And the fight over Gong's fortune, which was estimated by some sources as $50 million, was about to get really ugly. In 2017, Gong's mother filed a lawsuit alleging she had given her son a $5 million interest-free loan a few months before his death, according to the province. The administrators of Gong's estate replied via the court that his mother had not proven her claims or provided any kind of paper trail for the alleged loan. This was just the beginning of the floodgate of lawsuits, all wanting a piece of Gong's estate, Gong was a womanizer in life, and he remained a player, even posthumously. 
Among the lawsuits filed were seven different women who came forward to claim that Gong had been the father of their children. There were so many women that a news website called TheBreaker.com made a spreadsheet of the women, the children, and diagrammed the dates of the various relationships and birthdays. Post Magazine reported one of the alleged potential mothers, listed as Mother One, petitioned the courts for a DNA sample to prove her claims. Mother One said she met Gong in China in 2004, started living in his parents' house with him. She said that they had an on and off relationship, which was on in 2007, because she gave birth to their baby in 2008. She claimed to be his common-law spouse and said that she lived with Gong when he was in China. Gong's brother was fighting back against these lawsuits. One of the women who filed a claim said that Gong's brother stated she should not come to Vancouver from China because her safety would be in jeopardy. Instead, she said that he offered to compare his late brother's remains with the alleged child's DNA. She said he told her the test was inconclusive and ordered that the brother's remains be cremated, according to her petition. She said that she cut off all contact with Gong's brother and got a lawyer. If the remains were cremated, according to media reports, this would mean the only sample of Gong's DNA that could be potentially tested would be one of the 108 pieces that were with the coroner's office or the Vancouver Police Department. Another woman claimed in her petition that she met Gong in Beijing. They traveled around the world to Las Vegas, Miami, and Mexico. She said she gave birth in California, and Gong's name was listed as the father on the birth certificate. As evidence, she used hundreds of texts that were allegedly sent between her and Gong, in which he allegedly discussed his intention to marry her and his happiness about the baby. The petition said, quote, The deceased not only acknowledged the infant as his offspring during his lifetime, he flew to Beijing to meet her parents, paid the petitioner to come to Vancouver while she was pregnant and live with him, and flew her to Los Angeles, end quote. In the end, five children were proven to be DNA matches for Gong and a judge in Canada ruled that his estate should be divided between them. The National Post interviewed an estate litigation lawyer named Trevor Todd. He called the case a lesson in why you should leave a will. He said, quote, There's a number of people, and I see them through my doors, who have secret lives and other families, end quote. Eventually, the mansion on St. George's Way was put up for sale, the New York Times reported that realtors, perhaps seeking to downplay the house's bloody history, covered the original 963 address with a sticker that says 961. I've seen this a lot in true crime. Realtors will change the address to camouflage the bloody history. This happened on O.J. Simpson's house, and it's, it's happened on a lot of other houses. Eventually, the home was sold to a family. That taxidermied Black Panther was donated to a museum. The realtor told the Times that the family who bought the house were not Chinese. They said, quote, No Chinese people want to live here because they know what happened. They think it can bring bad luck, end quote. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Melissa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Ah!